0: Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that was just read. We recognize that your word is truth and that truth has a transforming effect upon our lives as we seek to obey it by the power of your spirit. So we ask that your spirit would help make clear the meaning of this text and also its application in our lives. And so as a result, we might exalt Christ with the things that we do and the things that we say. And we ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. Evan Williams, a founder of Twitter and a co-creator of Blogger, dreamed of setting people free to express their emotions and opinions on the Internet. A New York Times article in 2017 asked him, how are things going with that? Williams responded, I think the Internet is broken. The article goes on to say that Williams had believed for a few years, that things on the internet were actually getting worse. Why would Williams say that the internet is broken? The article provided this explanation. People are using Facebook to showcase suicides, beatings, and murder in real time. Twitter is a hive of trolling and abuse that it seems unable to control. Fake news, whether created for ideology or profit, runs rampant. Four out of 10 adults using the internet have said in a Pew survey that they have been harassed online. And all this happened before the presidential election in 2016 heated up. Williams confesses this. I thought once everybody could speak freely and exchange information and ideas, the world is automatically going to be a better place. I was wrong. When I read this article, I thought about how the internet exposes the brokenness within our society. It reveals the conflict, the fighting, the nastiness, the civil unrest following the death of George Floyd has led to tensions on various levels. The coronavirus pandemic prompted anger towards the government for failing to do more and shutting down parts of society. This has led to people losing their jobs and wondering how they're going to be able to make ends meet. The natural disasters such as the wildfires in California and Hurricane Sally have devastated communities. One could say that morality or morale, excuse me, is probably quite low. It causes you to wonder when will there be peace? Now, I'm not talking about the absence of conflict. I'm referring to a harmony that leads to flourishing and to delight. Uh, The Bible calls this piece shalom. Pastor Tim Keller compares shalom to a piece of fabric. If you throw a thousand threads on a table, they wouldn't be a fabric. They would just be threads. The threads become fabric when they become, when they have been woven over, under, around, and tug each other. As the threads become more interdependent, they become stronger, and more beautiful. God created the world comprised of all these various elements governments, schools, businesses, infrastructures, and etc. That all of these elements could work together to create something harmonious and something beautiful. Yet, with all the negativity in the world, peace or shalom, it seems like such a distant dream. The inhabitants of Judah probably felt the same way thousands of years ago when the prophet Micah preached to them. He pointed to the brokenness in their community. People had abandoned the worship of God for idols, rich landowners stole inheritances from the poor. The prophets preached false messages about God's goodness and promising prosperity, all the while omitting judgment. The leaders of Judah treated people as ingredients for hot pot. None could find justice in the courts due to corruption. And Micah warned Judah that God would level the city of Jerusalem for all this moral decay. Yet like a flicker of candlelight in the darkness, Micah provides a message of hope. He sees a day when peace will be found. How do we find this peace? How do we experience this shalom? Let's see what Micah says in Micah chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. Micah chapter four. In this text, Micah answers three questions. First, from whom do we find instructions for peace? Second, why do these instructions result in peace? And third, How do we pursue peace? So first question, from whom do we find instructions for peace? Instruction for peace comes from God. God created all things visible and invisible. He designed things to work in a certain way. If God crafted the world, then he knows how each element of creation should work together to bring about peace. The blueprint for peace comes from the divine architect. Instructions for peace comes from God. Now you may ask, why can't human beings provide instruction for peace? We may come up with wonderful theories and how to create flourishing societies and relationships. Yet we are a selfish people. When someone looks out for their personal interests rather than the interests of others, it leads to conflict. If people could be more charitable to one another without selfish motivation, then perhaps it could work. But we all know that there's a bit of darkness in every one of us. This is why we need instruction from God. For God alone is good, and there exists no selfishness in him. Micah foresees a day when all these pagan nations will eventually go to God for instruction. Well, where do the nations go to meet with God? The mountain of God. Micah describes the preeminence of the mountain of God in these opening verses. Micah describes it this way in verse one. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Why is the mountain mentioned so many times in this text? Well, if you remember in chapter three, of Micah, it ends with the city of Jerusalem being leveled to dust. And from this rubble, the mountain rises like a phoenix. The height of the mountain, once again, it symbolizes God's victory over chaos and that God still dwelt with his people. The temple in Jerusalem sits even now in the highest point of Jerusalem to remind its inhabitants that God watches over them, that that place where the temple once stood, is still at the highest point. So next, not only does Micah depict the temple being at the highest point, but Micah also depicts the various nations going to the mountain to receive instruction. Verse 2 describes the scene this way. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it is implied in this verse that the nations have given up trying to accomplish peace on their own. They may have said to themselves, our idolatry has led to further conflict and disarray in our nations. Let's go and see What the God of Israel teaches. After all, Israel seems to be flourishing under his rule. And let's see how we can live according to his plan. Now, the picture of people going to God for instruction occurs throughout the Bible. When Moses led Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai to receive instruction from the Lord. The instruction in the form of the law outlined how Israel would be a nation to bring shalom or peace to themselves And to their neighbors, the disciples in the new Testament also received instructions in how to live as members of the kingdom of God on a Mount as well. That's why the message that Jesus gives is called sermon on the Mount. And after Jesus' resurrection, he commissions his disciples again on a Mount, including us to bring this instruction to the world. So if instructions for peace come from God, then we ought to go to God for instruction. So does that mean we all have to plan a pilgrimage to Jerusalem? No. Paul writes that as believers, we ought to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. To receive the instruction of God requires us to saturate our lives with the scriptures so that it affects every fiber of our being, so that we teach, instruct, And sing God's instruction. Paul also writes that for believers, they become a temple for the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God that once dwelt in the tabernacle and in the temple now dwells in us as well. And as the Spirit prompts you and brings God's instruction to your mind, receive it. So then this prompts the second question. Why do these instructions from God result in peace? Well, God's instruction leads to peace because it acknowledges his rule. When you obey someone's instructions, you acknowledge their expertise, their authority. If your professor instructs you on how to solve a problem, then you follow his instructions step by step because he is the authority in that particular field. If a YouTube video gives you expert advice on how to patch a leak, you follow their advice, their instructions, step by step. And when we follow God's instruction, it acknowledges his rule, his authority. Now, Micah foresees a day when the nations will recognize the Lord's rule and power to enforce his rule, resulting in peace. Now, look with me at verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. From verse 3, we see that God will rule the nations. Micah uses the word judge. Now, when we hear the word judge, we think of a person in a black robe sitting in a courtroom interpreting the law and rendering a sentence on a case. But Micah has a much broader picture for the word judge. If you recall in the book of Judges, the leaders of Israel were called judges, that they ruled over the nation of Israel. And so Micah depicts God as a judge, but not only as a judge who dispenses the law, but a judge who rules over the nations. Now, God also serves as an enforcer. If you look in verse four, it describes God as the Lord of hosts, that God is not just the ruler, but he is also the commander in chief of the heavenly armies that he alone has the authority to enforce his rule and his instructions. Now, it's interesting to think that there is a statue with this phrase from verse three. They shall beat their swords into plowshares standing outside of the U.N. building in New York. Now, it surprised me to discover who had actually gifted this statue to the U.N. because it was actually the Soviet Union who gave it to the U.N. in 1959. And the quote itself on the statue lacks The first half in verse three, he shall judge between many peoples. He referring to God. Now, maybe the UN believes that through its work, it's able to establish lasting peace in the world. Yet we know that conflicts have still arise, even though the UN has this mission to preserve peace. And as believers, we recognize that no one, no government authority can establish lasting peace, peace that lasts forever apart from God. Now, Micah foresees a day when weapons used for war, such as swords and spears, will be turned into farming tools. War no longer exists, and such weapons are no longer necessary. Each person tends to his own farm and sits under his own vine or his fig tree. And this image is drawn from the days of Solomon where there is peace. There will be enough to eat, and there is no need for conflict. There is peace. It reminds me of a story that happened back in World War II. After General Douglas MacArthur conquered and secured the Indonesian island Biak, a chaplain named Leon Maltby arrived to minister to the troops. But resources on the island were quite scant. He built a chapel with a floor of packed coral, and for a roof, it was a yellow parachute. Now, he wanted to serve communion, but he had no cups to serve them with. So he found some unused 50 caliber bullets. He removed the lead, the gunpowder, and the firing caps. He welded and pressed them into the right shape and shined them into cups. It took two hours to complete each cup. He eventually created 80 cups to use. Now, after the end of the war in 1945, Maltby was the first Protestant pastor to enter into Japan. He became good friends with a Japanese pastor and used this communion set to serve communion with him. Bullets that could have killed lives now were shared by former enemies to remember Christ's blood shed for them. This set, this communion set is on display at the Veterans Museum in Daytona with the sign, the pastor clearly understood the significance of of instruments of death becoming a symbol for eternal life. So, what happens when people follow God's word? Well, when God's word is followed, peace follows. God's word in the law, the wisdom literature, and the prophets describe how God had entered into relationship with Israel. The law gave instruction on how sin, which separated God from Israel, was to be dealt with through the sacrificial system. God also instructed Israel in how it would interact with one another and also its neighbors. If Israel obeyed the law and submitted to God's rule, then they would have experienced peace. Or shalom. But Israel failed to live up to the covenant leading to their exile. As believers, we recognize that we once were enemies of God as well, due to sin. But through faith in Christ, we now have peace with God. When we became Christ followers, we also joined a church, a community composed of people from different backgrounds whether it be Asian, Latino, African-American, or Caucasian. And despite our differences, we have been united in Christ. And Paul talks about the peace that we receive in Christ leads to peace with one another. So have you experienced the peace of God or are you conflicted? I would invite you to think, what is holding you back from reconciling yourself to God through Jesus Christ? Or have you experienced peace in your relationships with others? And if not, acknowledge your need for help. For Christ alone can supply the resources that you need to experience harmony and peace in your relationship with others. Now, if there is a place where peace exists, then it should exist in the church. Yet we all know that conflict occurs regularly in the church. Unresolved conflicts linger Gossip and slander make their rounds. People tease each other. Words that become misunderstood lead to long-lasting grudges. And if we, with the resources of God, cannot strive for shalom within our church communities, then what makes us think that by ourselves we can bring peace to the communities around us? So where does peace begin? Peace begins with acknowledging God's rule. It begins with a submission to God's authority, yet it's hard because to submit, to be under God's rule requires humility. Now recall that in the book of James that we studied previously, that James traces the source of conflict to desires and desires that we desire to fulfill through the ways of the world rather than through the ways of God. Hence, we need to humble ourselves and live according to God's design, trusting that God's design is best and that it leads to peace. Now, what happens if we have a hard time believing that God's design for your life leads to peace? Well, then we have to pray. We have to ask God for help. I mean, does not James say that if any of us lacks wisdom, that we should ask God who gives wisdom generously to all those who ask? That if we lack the wisdom to see how God's design is good and leads to peace, we need to ask God for insight and understanding. So let's move to our last question. How do we pursue peace? Well, to pursue peace requires us to live according to God's instruction. It's not just enough to know what God's instruction is. But we need to live it out. And that by the power of the spirit, we pursue peace according to God's word with others in the church and those outside the church. That we are to allow God's instruction to shape and form and direct our lives. So we live according to God's instructions. Now, Micah records the response of the remnant in Judah as they hear God's promise of future peace. And the remnant pledges to live according to God's instruction. Verse five says this, for all the people walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God forever and ever. Now, despite the societal chaos that was happening in Judah, those faithful to God in this verse reaffirm their devotion to God. They reaffirm their devotion to live according to his ways. And the remnant knows that God at a future time will establish this peace that he has spoken about in the future. And as they wait, they will live their lives set apart from the idolatrous practices that are occurring around them, and that their set apart living and their devotion to God will draw others into their community so that they too might experience the peace that surpasses understanding. Now, God's people living according to his instructions piques the interest of others. When God establishes the nation of Israel, Mount Sinai, he intended Israel to attract others to come and to see his goodness. When other nations saw how God had blessed Israel, it creates curiosity. They come to Israel to figure out why is it that every time they plant crops, it's always bountiful, even though they take a day off in the week. Why do the people of Israel have no lack? Why do people in Israel treat each other justly and fairly from the leaders of the land to the lowest? And when foreigners ask Israel those questions, they would point to God and say, that is the source of their blessing, the source of shalom and peace. And Jesus intends for his followers to attract others to him as well. That when followers of Christ live according to the kingdom instruction that Jesus has provided, Jesus compares them to salt and light in the world. And when the world sees the good work of his people, they will give glory to God. So live according to God's instruction. What does it look like? Well, if you have conflict with someone at church, then make sure you go and clear the air. Make sure that when you come to worship God with other people, that there are no outstanding grudges. If someone has wronged you, forgive them, for God has forgiven your sins. Give credit where credit is due. If someone helps you at home or school, at work, make sure that you acknowledge their help and don't claim credit for yourself. If you encounter someone different at church, don't withdraw. Engage. Learn their story. For Christ has given his life to save you and those different than you. The church itself is supposed to serve as a preview, as a trailer of coming attractions when the kingdom comes in its fullness. One aspect that the church should model is peace and flourishing. The church should also seek the peace and flourishing of the communities around us. In the past, churches began Sunday school in order to teach children literacy. Churches founded orphanages to take care of orphans in their communities. Some ministered to those in prison. Others developed partnership school programs to be able to care for families in the community. And that when we live according to God's instruction, it brings peace to the church and to its communities. So from whom do we receive instruction for peace? Instruction for peace comes from God. And why do these instructions result in peace? Well, God's instruction leads to peace because it acknowledges his rule. And how do we pursue peace? We live according to God's instruction. On December four, two thousand 2017, 400 musicians gathered together in Philadelphia to perform David Lang's Symphony for a Broken Orchestra. The orchestra consisted of amateurs, professionals, and members of the Philadelphia Orchestra. The youngest member was a nine-year-old cellist. The oldest was an 82-year-old oboist. One could describe it as a motley orchestra. I also forget to mention that they also had an odd assortment of broken instruments. One had a trumpet held together by blue painter's tape. One violin lacked an A-string, one person's bow had lost most of its hair. One member carried a cello in multiple pieces. You see, the government had cut funding to the music program in the public schools in the area. So the musical instruments had gotten into disrepair. So the music begins with most instruments silent. Yet measure by measure, instruments began to join in. The trumpet, incapable of producing a sound, provided a rhythm by tapping the keys. A cellist produced sounds from their broken cello by turning a stringless peg. Eventually, the whole orchestra roared to life. Some musicians struggled. A French horn player fumbled his mouthpiece. A clarinet player squeaked and squawked. But together, the orchestra produced a rich harmony. As the piece wounded down, each section made its exit until only the squeal of a clarinet remained. This motley orchestra reminds me of the church. On our own, we have little to contribute, but each member of the church contributes to the voice of the symphony. Some clap and squawk, but all the voices harmonize because of the master composer, Jesus Christ. For through his death and resurrection, he has brought peace to the lost so that the tune of the church would invite others to join its song. And as we await the day when the full peace of God comes to this earth at Jesus' return, may we be faithful of being a people of peace. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for how you have called us into a relationship with yourself through your son, Jesus Christ, that there now exists peace between you and us. And we recognize that we live in a society in a time, in a season where there is little to no peace. It lacks shalom. And we ask that your spirit would help our church to not only experience shalom within our community, but also to bring it to the community around us. May you give us wisdom and insight in how to live out the instructions of your word so that we can be faithful in bringing peace to people around us until Jesus Christ returns. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.